0: It's a peaceful protest. We're walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you got to listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are going to look back. Our kids are going
1: to look back at this and say, you were a part of that. I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the 60s. And he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We got to keep pushing forward.
0: Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison.
1: Forward Progress right in front of you and also in front of you, my man, Amin Hassan, sitting in for Kirk Morrison this week. Good to have you with us. We'll visit with Craig Taylor, From uh, the NBA's foundation, he's their executive director. The fifth rollout of just ducats uh, to fantastic organizations throughout the NBA's 28 markets. We'll also get a review of all the good things that happened uh, at All-Star for HBCUs. And also, how about these fellows? The uh, HBCU Fellowship with the NBA. We'll find out uh, what's happening with that program. But first, we start in with what continues from the b- Brian Flores case. I mean, as folks should well know by now, uh, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins suing the NFL for racial discrimination in its hiring practice has added two more longtime NFL coaches uh, to the amended complaint. Uh, and so, it, b- before we even get into who and what Mm -hmm. there was this initial feeling we all had of me. And obviously Brian Flores and his attorneys had to go through it. uh, And it feels like Brian was the charging bull in this case, that if you go down this line, if you grab this particular rail, it's a wrap. Well, that obviously is not the case. The man has a job, right? He's trying to maintain a platform and a push. uh, Now with the help of, of Steve, Wilkes and Ray Horton uh, of just what has become and through these consistent stories truly is and remains uh, now through uh, legislation uh, seems like it's going to come to an abrupt end, but the practice of hiring coaches and dancing around the Rooney rule uh, as just that a show when you already had the coach that you're going to have and how many of these black coaches uh, felt like that they were in sham operations in sometimes even getting the job and just right. being a bridge uh, coach, which is Coach Wilkes' scenario, uh, but just being a candidate for candidate's sake uh, when organizations wanted to do something else entirely, uh, dancing around the rule.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if you talk about the particulars in the cases of Coach Wilkes, he uh, was head coach of the Cardinals for one season. Uh, they weren't good. Uh, They didn't draft, uh, they drafted Josh Rosen over several other notable players who have all gone on to have much more uh, productive NFL careers. Uh, And then they got rid of him. And Cliff Kingsbury, who they, they didn't get rid of him for Bill Parcells or Bill Belichick or one of the great, oh, you know, hey, I know you were, you didn't get a fair shake, but I have an opportunity to get one of the truly transformational coaches in the league. Mm -hmm. You did it for a guy who was a career, you know, Peter Principal person falling up uh, his whole way. You know, if you look at Cliff Kingsbury's uh, track record in college football, uh, it was nondescript. It certainly wasn't something to jump at as far as, you know, giving up on your guy. And I think that's one of the, the hallmarks of when we talk about prejudice in the hiring practices of coaches in professional sports. Jax, it's not just that they don't hire you, but if you do get hired, your quote-unquote leash is much shorter than that of your white counterparts. That uh, a white head coach, all else being equal, resumes and acumen and everything, a white head coach is more likely to be given second and third chances than a black head coach. Uh, and so that's what Steve uh, Wilkes's kind of uh, assertion is there. When we talk about Ray Horton, now this one is truly damning Mm. because it is again what you call the concept of the sham interview that you already know who you're going to hire but you're going to go through the motions of we opened up a search and we had all of these diverse candidates here and we (laughs) finally chose that this man right here was the person person for the job when in actuality there was no sincerity in your interview process the reason why Ray Horton's one is so much different uh, than even what happened to Brian Flores. Because if you remember, the way Brian Flores went is they interviewed for the Jess job, and they got a text from Bill Belichick saying congratulations, and then Bill Belichick realized he sent the congratulations text to the wrong Brian. Right? Or excuse me, Brian Flores hadn't even interviewed yet. And, right. and uh, Belichick had sent the congratulations Brian text forgetting the Jets, i was like i didn't even interview you yet like oh you met the other guy because they already promised it that's one thing it's another thing altogether when you have the ray horton situation where uh mike malarkey freely admits on a podcast two years ago hit that one by the way in 2020 in 2020 that it was a sham process that he already had the job and they just went through the motions, and I feel guilty about it. In the other case, Brian Dable can, can claim, hey, I don't know. The Giants interviewed me and then they offered me a job. I have no idea how they handled the rest of the process. But here, Mike Malarkey is telling you, oh, I know exactly how the Titans handled the rest of the process. And it was insincere and circumventing the spirit of the rule of the Rooney rule. That, to me, I think is a massive smoking gun because now you have corroboration, not only from someone, you know, who benefited from this, but someone white who benefited from this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and Jax, we talk about this all the time. Many of the things that afflict people of color in this country, that ain't new. It ain't just start. It's been happening for years, and we've been talking about it for years. Right. But for whatever reason, it usually gets catches wildfire when white people all of a sudden become part of it, part of the conversation in a meaningful way, not in a resistant way or a defensive way, but in a, oh, my God, this is awful, right? So when you think about what happened to George Floyd in 2020, which is I'm assuming that that piece of content came out with Mike Pilarkey on it to begin with. It was because people across the country, not black people, who most of us are like, yeah, this is what happens, but white people recognize, oh, my God, this is happening? Police are doing this to people of color for no reason? Hmm. Then you get a movement and a move towards change. I think similarly here, I think these comments by Mike Malarkey, albeit two years late, are going to come in very uh, influential in the way this case goes. So you have the Cardinals and the Titans added to this
1: lawsuit. The Texans, by the way, also a part of this amendment. And this speaks to exactly what the fear was uh, as Flores was moving into this space, opening up uh, room for people to be courageous and really stand up against uh, this this long-held practice of trying to dodge and weave within the system. Uh, Flores' attorneys allege in the amended complaint that the Texans retaliated against Flores by removing him from consideration for their head coaching vacancy due to his decision to file this action and speak publicly about the systematic, systemic uh, discrimination in the national football league so they were like right at the top of the old boy network stuff of oh if you're going to do that we, we we can't we're not going to touch you with a 10-foot pole they, they didn't mess around and now they find themselves in this suit
0: yeah and and you know in basketball the golden state warriors have the same strength in numbers mm-hmm. this is this is a great case of this because yeah. if it was just brian flores even though the stuff that he alleges we know happens. A lot in this league, they can always write you off as just this, the 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 stray blade of grass that sticks out the wrong way. Yeah. But now that you have two other cases that are unrelated, but have similar hallmarks, I think it lends more credibility, more momentum. And you know what? I hope yeah. for Jacks. I hope for more coaches to step forward, more people to to show up and say yes. Either, yes, this has happened to me too, or yes, this has happened to him or her because I know, because I was part of the decision-making process. I hope that, that there's momentum built so we can get some meaningful change.
1: So what's the end game in all of this, right? The, the suit calls for, among other things, increased transparency in NFL hiring. The NFL has tried to get out in front of this. At their uh, team owner meetings uh, last month or yeah i think last month earlier this month uh just starts bleeding together i mean weeks ago, uh, weeks ago That's weeks ago that. well done we can ha- always you're always safe there even if it was just a week ago
0: yeah.
1: um there was a decision made that the Rooney rule is more now the Rooney rule is uh, in your hiring rotation there must be at all times a person of color or female among your coaching staff and by the way one has to be on the offensive side of the ball because of the trend of hiring in the National Football League, right. so much comes from offense that defensive coordinators and defensive coaches are in a tough spot to begin with. Right. White or black in getting these yep. jobs, but oftentimes the majority of African Americans uh, that are in the coaching ranks are rising quicker through the defensive side of the ball.
0: Oh, uh, the NFL. Sure that's just a coincidence.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, incentives for hiring black coaches and increased visibility for black assistant coaches. Um, how do you get if you're the National Football League? You're trying to get this, I would imagine, to not roll fully out. I don't know where the where's the settling though, right? Like you you you're taking the right initial steps, I'm sure, right? But man, there, there might be some dirty laundry that ends up on a courtroom stenographer. St- what is the, staphogra- the, the stenographer? The stenographer's That's little. Yeah. The oh, ticker the, tape, that, I guess we'll the, call it, yeah, and it rolls out onto the floor. I, the it's got to be more so sophisticated small.
0: now. Why is it so? Why don't they give them a full-size typewriter? it to be a laptop with different laptop buttons thing. now,
1: right? Like I don't know. I'm sure there's some sort of monopoly on such things, exactly. But anyway, that that imagery is what I'm looking at. But a lot of the testimony that will come down is simply going to be damning um, if proven. And she feels like there's just so many receipts laying everywhere.
0: Yeah, no, look, and and by the way, there's another question that Brian Flores is going to have to answer in the same way that uh, Colin Kaepernick had to answer it as well. Are you willing to settle, take the payment, leave it alone, and trust that you've scared them enough to inject enough change Mm -hmm. that they're going to try and take this process more seriously as with the steps you just described, Jax? Or do you say no it's the principle of the matter the money is secondary i want to see this out so that we make sure there's meaningful change but also risk maybe not winning winning the suit and then just having it end up with being it, it
1: almost feels like he has to see this all the way through and if the, if he was in i don't know if there's a more protective environment than being an assistant with the steelers when uh, the the ownership of that team is the family that put into place the initiative to try to make sure that coaches of color are are getting the fairest of shakes. Uh, But like you said, uh, can it be put into place where the buy-off is so good or satisfactory and that you're seeing already new policies coming out of of team meetings uh, that you're
0: satisfied? Right. No, I, like, and that's and that's that's the big ask. And by the way, there's also like a there's a social component to that. That if you if even if you're saying, hey, look around, the change is happening. We we mm-hmm. the desired impact is taking place in terms of them taking this more seriously. I don't need to see this out. I can settle, and then we can just move on. There are going to be people who say, oh, sold out, took the money. Like, you know, and, and, you know, that's nothing more than the court of public opinion. But, again, this stuff matters because these guys are operating in public.
1: Um, One other thing that came out of the annual owners meetings last month, I have confirmed to me, uh, the NFL announced a, a new diversity advisory committee to review league and club policies on diverse hiring. This six-member committee uh, will lend its experts and uh, external perspective. So these will be folks from outside the NFL uh, on industry best practices, and we'll evaluate uh, league and club diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and initiatives along the way. So they, they, listen, the NFL is definitely trying to be able to point to, well, we're, we're doing some of these things and we'll keep an eye on that story and so much more. We do need to take our first break. When we come back, a conversation with the executive director of the NBA Foundation. Just ducats and ducats to communities all over the NBA's footprint. Uh, Their executive director is Greg Taylor, I believe making his third appearance on the program since the uh, NBA decided that they were gonna take real money and impact real programs around this nation. We'll talk about uh, this fifth round of funding when we come back here on Forward Progress.
0: You're listening to Forward Progress on SiriusXM Radio.
1: As we continue here on Forward Progress, Jason Jackson here with you. It's great to have with us once again the Executive Director of the NBA Foundation, Greg Taylor. Welcome back. I think I think we're three deep with you now. I appreciate checking in. And let's go, great conversations.
2: Exactly. Awesome to be back. Appreciate you having me, Jason. Uh, always love talking to you all, and uh, excited about the conversation ahead. Well, let's uh, let's rewind just a
1: little bit. Uh, You had a great platform uh, in Cleveland, All-Star Weekend. It was our pleasure uh, in uh, particularly NBA radio uh, to have our very first live broadcast be the uh, HBCU Classic. It was just such a fun experience for for us, both institutions, and I assume uh, the NBA and the foundation.
2: Yeah, All-Star Weekend was spectacular on so many different levels for us. But as you say, Uh, the HBCU Classic. I mean, we're always interested in Innovative ways to grow the game of basketball. What better way to do that than to highlight both the academic and athletic genius that we know exists at HBCUs? Uh, Howard and Morgan put on an incredible show both on the court, and then what was really great, you know, and I credit so many folks on the NBA side to uh, really uh, uh, put in place programming, if you will, to expose those players even after the game was over to the what we call the business of basketball. So we had a great kind of educational session with them, got a chance to connect, all of that is consistent, if you will, with what we're trying to do at the NBA Foundation, which is to really promote economic and educational opportunity for Black youth. And so All-Star Weekend was just a great moment to, to both highlight that work, highlight our commitment to HBCUs, and certainly uh, lift up the work we're doing on the Foundation side.
1: What most energizes you about the, the real full embrace of partners, of teams, of fans, into this work that you all are doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, my mom told me there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And I think in many ways what really motivates me is I think there's a shared commitment amongst so many people both in the league in our partnering networks in the communities that we are looking to be uh, to contribute to there's a real commitment and a movement a groundswell if you will of folk who understand that in order for there to be true opportunity for all we've got to invest in and imply re- and opportunities and resources to uh, uh to young people and, and so we're building and standing on the backs of so many, or the shoulders of so many folk who have been leaders in this work. And and so I think in many ways, what excites me is the, the, just just imagine the potential of all of those resources and thought leaders and, 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 and practitioners and young people all kind of committed to uh, the same outcomes, particularly for Black youth on the economic side. I just think both the country, those communities, those individual families all will be strengthened in a way that we all benefit from. Uh, And I think that's what uh, motivates me more than anything in this work. And I'm pleased that the NBA is utilizing its platform uh, uh, to to share in those shared values and goals around economic opportunity for Black youth. That's really what it's all about. And just humbled and honored to be in this position.
1: Is the feeling and the forward thought that All-Star Weekend, provides the foundation a wonderful platform going forward to continue this marriage with HBCUs from just an image standpoint, not that that's a leading force, but maintaining that platform, particularly the classic, uh, because it's a game changer for the universities that, that get a chance to be in that space. And I I can already hear whispers of uh, athletic programs uh, throughout the MEAC and the SWAC <laughs> trying to make sure they they line up. Who's next? Who gets to play
2: yeah, next? stands? A couple of things, I mean, to your question, I mean, first, I would say, I think everyone involved in uh, executing the the, the HBCU Classic was pleased with the outcome. And I know there's a commitment to do that uh, in years to come. So really excited. Cleveland showed out like that arena was full. The game was great. The institutions represented well. And so I think folks really happy from that standpoint, listen, we always benefit from the power and the reach of what we would say is one of our main flagpole uh, events in terms of of NBA all-star weekend to highlight all of the great work the league is doing, not the least of which is the NBA foundation. And so we will continue to utilize that platform. We were really fortunate to host Uh, Many of our grantees that are in the Cleveland area, we actually brought some grantees from across the country. The local Cleveland philanthropic community was very helpful in terms of us, you know, shining a light on opportunities in that that Northeast Ohio corridor. And and that's all the backdrop of of, of NBA All-Star. And so we just utilize that platform to kind of highlight our work, certainly learn from folks who have been in this work longer than we have, and certainly put our shoulder to the wheel to continue to try to improve life outcomes for Black youth 14 to 24.
1: Greg Taylor is the executive director of NBA Foundation. Great to have him back here on Forward Progress. I also wanted to get you on initially to just talk about the progress of finding uh, your your fellows. The the NBA fellowship just seems like a wonderful launching pad for young people to understand. Number one, sometimes the most important thing, what they didn't know they didn't want to do in this (laughs) industry, but also figuring out the wonderful uh, just. kaleidoscope of things that are available when you start to look into the nooks and crannies of the operation of of not just NBA teams but team sports overall we just have them uh, fortunately their talents focused uh, in our space in the association Uh, I remember from early in the year sea to shining sea you were calling for all the applicants so how did that process (laughs) go and where are you uh, in in naming these uh, these fellows
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of people involved. I just want to use this moment to highlight Lauren Sills and Chris Montefusco on the NBA side. I know there's others. I know you get in trouble when you name people. I get it. But those two have really been driving the work. And so just kudos to those two, first and foremost. I think we got something like 2,700 applications for these 60 spots. Um, I know that the, the, the interest is really, really high. And so we're very excited that we're at the point where the fellows have been identified, they've been matched with the team opportunities, and now we're in the middle of kind of designing what that day-to-day experience would be uh, uh, in partnership with uh, Thurgood Marshall College Fund and others in terms of moving the work forward. And so we're, we're very pleased with where we've ended up. Um, as you say, I think the core Core mission of, of the fellowship. Uh, certainly, it grows out of the foundation's meaningful employment strategy. We want to expose young people to careers that are growth, that are growing industries that have living wage revenue and salary lines and professional development opportunities. And so, in many ways, the beauty of the HBCU fellowship is to expose. Those graduate and undergraduate students from historically black colleges and universities to what we call the business of basketball. Uh, it is absolutely amazing for folks to focus on being on the court. But as you say, Jay, there's so many jobs and opportunities and career emphases out, out off of the court that go to put the product uh, uh, that goes to organize the product. And so we want to expose those young people in a real thoughtful way to what are those career opportunities. We, we've got accountants and lawyers and creative directors and computer experts and analysts, like there's all, you know, not to mention event producers, like, all of these backdrop, people just see the show but often don't understand what's behind the scenes. And so we wanna talk about the business side of the game. What, How, how is revenue generated and what do they do in tickets? Say all, all of that is what this is about. And so we're really excited that we think there'll be a comprehensive opportunity for the participants to check out what we're doing, to learn, uh, to be exposed and we know networking and making and formalizing relationships is so important to get your foot in the door. And I think all of those educational outcomes uh, is what this fellowship is about. And we couldn't be more excited to be a part of it.
1: That last point you made might be the very most important. I listen, you've got to learn, you got to have your skill set straight. You've got to learn how business works, but if you don't have somebody that's ushering you in and through these opportunities, it's hard to get in. Uh, yeah. th- this is a narrow, narrow platform, a, a, yes. almost a, a pin top landing. And that <laughs> has to be the most enjoyable part of this is opening the door to 60 yeah. folks who regularly would not have had that opportunity prior. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we've all, uh, or certainly in my experience, I've been blessed with folks who poured into me, who mentored me, who told me, young fella, don't do that we're clear about what the unspoken rules were, how did you show up and show out, if you will. And so we want to extend that opportunity for the the participants in the program. We're excited it'll be a year over year class. And so this initial group of 60, we'll have another group next year and the following year. This is something we want to have, you know, operating in perpetuity, if you will. And so we've got, you know, we've got big plans and big dreams for it. But I think ultimately it's about understanding the skill it takes to uh, compete and to to, to lead and and, and participate in in team sports or pro sports, connecting you to mentors and connecting you to networks so that you can keep those relationships going, and then really providing a meaningful experience. All of those educational opportunities what we're trying to do uh, for those cohorts, and the foundation is happy to be a part of it.
1: Greg, the last thing I want to talk to you about uh, as a subject matter was this fifth round of grants. I, I was blown away number one, that you're already up to five rounds of it. Uh, yeah, was this, yeah. Was there a <laughs> emphasis or a focus in this particular round uh, that kind of is a common thread between the organizations?
2: Yeah. A couple things. Uh, we're in our fifth round. Uh, we we've done a, a little over 118 grants thus far. Mm. Uh, this last round is 40 organizations. Uh, at $11 million. Again, we're a small but mighty team. We are we are grinding, as we, we say uh, uh, on this side. I think a couple things come out of it. I think we're very excited. If you look at the themes in the grants that have been made around ar- areas of workforce development, around pathways to higher education and continued training, mentorship, entrepreneurship. There's a focus on STEM and coding on the technology side. And so all of that is very, very deliberate. Um, it's too early in our tenure to kind of be, be as precise as we'd like to be on in terms of what are those investment areas moving forward. But these are themes that are coming out of the work uh, that we think result in incredible uh, opportunities for young people to be, a, to be prepared and to excel in what we're calling those meaningful career opportunities or pathways moving forward. And so very, very excited about where we are again. I'd be remiss not to give a huge shout out to the uh, NBA Foundation team and our partnering organizations. We appreciate, you know, folks entrusting their trust in us and also partnering with us as we move forward to kind of build on their work. You know, ultimately what we want to see are increased uh, outcomes and opportunities for black youth. We want to see strengthened organizations that serve those black youth in our NBA markets. And then we want to see young people attain, uh, uh, you know, career uh, opportunity jobs and, and, and prospects moving forward. And so we think we're off to a really good start uh, and uh, more to come.
1: Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to name two programs that jumped off the page for me. Please. Uh, black girls code. Number yep. one. Absolutely. Uh, there is a, I know that's one of your more national associations of funding. Um, And and for those who don't know, they're they're devoted to showing the world that Black girls can code and do so much more uh, by building uh, pathways for Black girls to embrace the the current tech marketplace. Tremendous. Uh, There's a Miami offshoot of that. And so uh, for those that know my night job, I work for the Miami (laughs) Heat. And it's just such a wonderful organization. The next one is I am a graduate of the Inroads program. Wow. that's us I saw that jump off the page. And, and by the way, still have the, the tagline of developing uh, innovative leadership development programs and creating solutions that identify, accelerate. I should know this by heart. It's been a while <laughs> and elevate underrepresented talent through their careers. It used to be business and industry. So I'm glad they widened it to uh, yeah. careers, but uh, what a magnificent program, Greg, I know you, the way you guys vet these, Organizations, You know everything about them, but yeah. to get young people into internships for the entirety of their college run uh, by putting them through a rigorous uh, process of review uh, in their senior year. When you want to you want to gear down a little bit, <laughs> I remember those last two years <laughs> of trying to, first of all, be competitive in yeah. a group of talented black and brown kids, in my yeah. case, in, in Cincinnati. Uh, yeah. But that so prepared me for everything else that was coming, for the yeah. work that I was going to do in Scripps Howard's television affiliate in Cincinnati, uh, yeah. into my work at Bowling Green, into my first job at the Fox affiliate in Miami. Yeah. All of that stuff is what you have to deal with.
0: The, yeah, that's joy, right.
1: The jubilation of of success, the the misery of your failures, and trying to pick yourself up in those spots. Uh, you 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 battle toe to toe in that program. It's such a unique program. I'm so Happy and proud that uh, the NBA Foundation is founded and touching.
2: Yeah, just again, it, it warms my heart that you know we got a graduate at En-ROADS. I'm sure they'll hear this, and you know maybe they're going to want you to come speak to the next graduating class. So I'll put that out there. But Please I do. think the notion, as you said, like um, we, we just have a, a really great roster of, of organizations. I'm so glad you highlighted Black Girl Code. We could have listed any of the Ghetto Film School, Get Lit, Mobilize Green. All of these organizations. The common thread is about you know, we're, we're going to demystify stereotype, be clear that Black youth can lead and be contributors in society, provide opportunity, resource, and skill, a little bit of mentorship, a little bit of love, and put them on their their, their pathway to uh, to real opportunity. And I think all of the uh, grantees in our full network all subscribe to that, I think is one. And then the last point you made, which I think is, I, I, I pick up too, we call them stackable resources, right? We want to, in our 28 markets, we want to put a comprehensive network of resources and opportunity in place for these young people. So, to your point, that you can excel, you can have the safety to fail, you can learn, you can take a risk or two, you can broaden your horizon, you can step into a room that you don't know and feel comfortable. like That's really what it's all about. And we know so many of our young people, regardless of where they're from, don't have the opportunity and support to do that. And so part of the resources that we're able to make uh, uh, available to these organizations and the partnerships that we formed and really their longstanding work, if you will, around uh, supporting uh, young people, that's really why we're in this business and in this work. And we just couldn't be more excited and we're so, you know, we're so thankful for these groups and others uh, as we roll forward. So we're, we're up and at them, man, and trying to fight the good fight.
1: Before I let you run, how are you balancing organizations that know full well what you're up to and they're coming to you versus you and your staff scouring uh, the, the the nation with the help, I'm sure, of NBA yeah. teams and finding
2: the right partners? Yeah. yeah, a little bit of both. So we're open and you know this this platform and others people know where to find us nbafoundation.com encourage you to apply but what we're proactively doing is we're spending time out in site visits at our team markets and what's really been fantastic is the team foundations have taken it upon themselves to organize in many cases the local funding community as well as potential grantees and so what we do is have you know direct in person meetings where they're able to ask us lots of questions about what our competitive grants? What are we looking for? What does an organization have to set forth in order to be considered? So it's really a a level of transparency. And I would say demystifying, if you will, the the philanthropic partnership oftentimes that is weird for folks. So that's one. And then the funding community is an opportunity for us to partner and leverage our resources with other investments that are already happening in that community. And so we're proactively seeking out organizations as well as uh, encouraging people to apply because they know who we are. As you said earlier, rigorous process, limited resources, but uh, we're pleased with who we're identifying and pleased with the, the, the pickup, if you will, the pace of folk that are finding our us and, 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 and the grants we're able to make. And so we'll keep at it, keep moving.
1: Greg Taylor, Executive Director of the NBA Foundation, with
2: us here on Forward Progress.
1: We always appreciate your time and uh, the
2: heroic work that you and your team are doing. I appreciate you, Jason. Just fantastic. Thanks for having me. And anytime. time. And uh, I'm gonna hold you to that inroads. Uh, I, I Please, see you don't. as like the keynote speaker at inroads graduation. Let's go. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. You
1: don't have to fly. You get zero <laughs> fight out of me. I, I'm I am walking testimony. So that absolutely. All. Thanks so much for having me, man. Appreciate. Thank it. Thank you, folks. Stay with us. It's the celebration of the barrier breaking of Jackie Robinson in Major League Baseball this week. We will dive in what MLB is up to this year as they continue that acknowledgement. That and more coming up as Forward Progress continues.
2: You're listening to SiriusXM XM Radio.
0: We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison.
1: Thanks for rolling with us all the way through the program. Amin El-Hass and Jason Jackson side by side. We appreciate you, mean sitting in for uh, Kirk this week. and. This week, the celebration of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball uh, will hit the calendar as it does every single year. And I I still think back to uh, how long baseball went, like the length of time uh, that this game occurred until the first Black man played. And then the fight in that space from 47 into the fifties and and listen, every league had their barriers. Uh, It's just, you know, I think about the handful of years, was it four years for the NBA? Uh, The NFL was open then closed and then opened again. Uh, I I, I don't know if we're comparing misery for any good reason. Uh, What I do love is the fact that this game that I grew up loving uh, decided that this was going to be someone that stood above all else above everything else that in every major league ballpark we're going to point to this period and we're going to have a celebration but it also causes us for a very difficult discussion about the game and a game that loves its numbers and everything that preceded uh this game being inclusive fully
0: mm, yeah and and you know obviously jackie robinson wasn't just a great baseball player but he was also a man with the right temperament for that job, to be the first black player in baseball, Branch Rickey knew the guy's going to be someone with somewhat of a thick skin because you're going to catch hell as the first. But if you're the right guy, and the right guy, again, not just in temperament but also a hell of a player, you know that opens the doors. For many more who don't have to be as quote unquote perfect as you are, and so Jackie you know Jackie Robinson is just he is truly a an American historical legend for this country, not just for his sport and the, the fact that he gets honored every year uh, where everybody wears the number 42, which is retired across major League baseball. you cannot wear 42 any team. I think that is, that is a nice gesture, and it's a nice way to keep in memory what he stood for and, and what his contribution to society, not to baseball, but to society was. It's a really cool story that his daughter uh,
1: Sharon tells about the first time she and her brother David heard their father talk about everything that he went through. The racist taunts, the bigotry uh, in those early years with the Dodgers. And the thing that's amazing that she shares is that, and she said it surprised her as well, that as he reflected, I guess, that point, about 30 years in the rearview mirror, maybe a little bit more, that he didn't tell the story back in a painful way. It was just a matter of fact, factual, almost... First of all, happy that he was sharing this with his kids finally had to wait till it could really land on them in a way that, you know, they really understood his impact. Um, But also at the time he was, you know, struggling heavily with diabetes. It took him way too young. He died at 53 Mm -hmm. because of complications in that space. And so maybe he had shifted his entire thinking to, you know, what was ailing him at that particular point. But you want to talk about difficulty. Difficulty. And being asked to turn the other cheek when that stuff obviously just you want to jump in the front row with the bat that's in your hand yeah. and to handle business, it's astonishing uh that he could find himself in that space twenty five thirty years later
0: yeah and 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 find peace within that, right, not like you said, not to remember those moments with venom or with regret. Or with uh just even just hurt to remember them as just that was just how things were and these are the facts and I'm glad and happy I'm able to share this with my family and who have in turn turned around and shared many of those stories with the rest of the world. Uh it's pretty incredible. I do wanna ask you though, Jax, not to mm-hmm. lighten up what it should be a very serious and sombre uh Conversation, but the fact that everyone's gonna wear Dodger blue—I don't know about that one. (laughs) I kind of feel like, okay, this is kind of like, okay, okay, we've we've recognized Jackie enough, but can Mm -hmm. we give some love to Branch Ricky too? He had something (laughs) to do with it too. I'm like, guys, I don't think we need to do that, right? (laughs) Like,
1: (laughs) well, top of the list would be Giants fans who are like, "Oh my God, can you imagine? No way, we fight in the stands over this thing, right? We're not not making that transition." no, I, listen, there has to be a partnership to make anything like that happen. I get that. But the specific day in, day out, enduring of the hell of it is really what we're talking about. The, the, the isolation, the, the, the loneliness, um, the restriction of response. I, I, I get that again, only because you're on the stage. Like we sometimes forget sports being entertainment. And it being moved into the, the vitriol that would come down, like we're listen, we're out here playing a game. You're being entertained by a game, and now we're taking our societal standards, which were complete garbage at the time, and now we're heaping that on one person and, and expecting that one person to respond in a manner uh, that makes people comfortable while he's spending every single day uncomfortable. Those two experiences of being the brain child of or or. Being the individual that comes up with the idea and then implements it versus the person that has to go through it, I think is yeah. a, there's a bit of a gap there.
0: Right, and and, and by the way, I, I you know, much like Red Arbach in the NBA, like I don't want to downplay the contribution of that person. In, in the same, like all. as I said, as I said in the first segment today, it seems in this country that civil rights issues progress when white people become part of the pulling in the right direction as opposed to being defensive or kind of dismissive of it sure. so obviously the you know branch ricky he deserves some credit i just think like hey it's jackie robinson day can not we, on that day make, yeah. yeah can we make it jackie robinson day and keep it the jackie robinson day you know it's it, by the way uh this is the 75th anniversary of his debut with the dodgers yeah. uh later this summer the Jackie Robinson Museum is going to open in New York. Uh, I did not know this, Jax, Did you know that Rachel Robinson, his widow, is still with us?
1: I, I did, I'm a, and I'm, and I don't want to say astonished in the in the fact that, you know, that she's alive. We love the fact that she's alive, but it is one of those things when you when it hits you, and you're like, oh my goodness,
0: Jax. Jax Jackie died, Robinson died like, when I was born. Like this, this isn't. This isn't far removed. I, I, I bring it up to point out to people: this isn't something that happened 400 years ago. This is something that is we can reach out and touch it. Right, Rachel Robinson, the widow of Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, the grandson of slaves. Yes. That's how close it is. It ain't ancient history, and as we, we, we're in a time now where teaching people the history of this nation all of a sudden has become taboo. Like I I wanna make sure that we're not talking about like dinosaurs and cavemen. This is stuff that is that accessible that the widow of this man who is the grandson of slaves is still with us right now. And you know, every time we talk about Jackie Robinson, we have to remember everything within that backdrop. It's not just the the vitriol of the times towards any sort of integration. It's like that era that he lived in actually represented the most enlightened part of American history to that point. To that point, right. To that point. So this isn't far removed, ladies and gentlemen. And, and you know, the again, this is why I go back and I say Jackie Robinson isn't just a, an important historical figure for baseball. He's an important historical figure for American history, for society. And, of course, one of his most famous quotes ever was, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And how better could you describe Jackie Robinson's life than with a quote like that?
1: We don't have enough room to get to the next layer of the Robinson legacy, which is this game calling to and speaking to young African-American kids. This game is diverse. We're not going to fight that part of it at all. But there was a point – <clears throat> in my childhood, and you're a little bit younger than me, but I think the, the spike of participation almost reached 30% uh, African-American players. I If it's seven right now, I'd be surprised. You,
0: the, the big thing, Jax, isn't about the dearth of African-American players in Major League Baseball. I know that's the easy landing spot we get to. It's only 7%. It was 30% once upon a time. What's going on? Like, why aren't black players... Getting a a fair shake or whatever, right? Or just drawn to the game, or, right? Like that's 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 the issue. That's the it. issue is, is they don't even play. If you look at youth sports, there's no participation. It's uh, this game has been in essence abandoned, or should I say, the game has abandoned the, this segment of the population as the investment in baseball. Scouting and development, particularly at younger ages, we're not talking about the 17-year-olds who are about to come over. We're talking about putting money into, hey, group of eight-year-olds, come here. Here's a baseball mitt. Catch this, da-da-da. Like That money has shifted from inner-city America to the Caribbean, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, et cetera, et cetera. And in essence, we we did a Sophie's Choice of which minorities get to be yeah. the the minorities in baseball as opposed to saying... No, we need both. We, we, this, this game should be accessible to everybody. Cause that's the big thing, Jacks. And again, I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but the idea that baseball is an inaccessible, has become an inaccessible sport is expensive yeah. for families to enroll their kids in baseball because there's all this equipment, as opposed to soccer and basketball, which is yeah, just show up and wear what you're going to wear and, and we can get it done it's
1: amazing. you nailed it about these academies that are being built all over the world, particularly in the Caribbean. Um, There are a few major league teams that have added it to their community. And uh, my Cincinnati Reds would be one of them. I encourage uh, so many of these teams all over the nation. That's going to be the resurgence going into the community, building these academies, teaching the game. And you nailed it by the way, at eight years old and Taking all of the burden away, that the that the gloves and cleats and bats mm-hmm. are are all there. The catcher's gear mm-hmm. is all there, the, and and you're bringing those kids. real in. estate, Jackson, the space to play. have a place to play. Right, right. No, yeah. it's critical, my man. We appreciate you stepping in. Always come back anytime.
0: I love it. Always love being here, and great to work with you again, my man. Uh, for
1: Amino Hassan, our guest today. Uh, Greg Taylor from the NBA Foundation our producer Pernell Brown I'm Jason Jackson we'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress